unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Tamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. The decline of India's parliament is a refrain that has often been repeated over the last 75 years of modern Indian democracy. A new book on India's parliament addresses the decline thesis head-on and provides a warts-and-all assessment of India's legislative chamber. The book is called House of the People, Parliament and the Making of Indian Democracy, and its author is the scholar Rana Joy Sen. Rana Joy is a senior research fellow at the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. He's a veteran scholar of Indian democracy, having studied at the University of Chicago with two of the leading lights of contemporary India scholarship, Lloyd and Suzanne Rudolph. I am pleased to welcome him to the show for the very first time. Rana Joy, thanks so much for coming on and congratulations on the book. Thank you, Milan. Thanks for having me here. So I want to start with the very, very big picture. Uh, at the very start of your new book, you write that Understanding parliament is central to understanding, quote unquote, the puzzle of Indian democracy. And I think that's maybe a good place to start. If you could help unpack for our listeners, what is the puzzle of Indian democracy and layperson's terms? And, and what role do you think parliament plays within it? Right. So I think, you know, one of the puzzles of Indian democracy is the, you know, it's, it's longevity. Uh, you know, when India becomes independent in 1947, uh, I think there are very few people who believe that Indian democracy is going to stay the course. You know, there are all sorts of predictions that it's going to last five years, 10 years, maybe a couple of decades. But uh, as we have seen, Indian democracy has fairly successfully now completed, you know, 75 odd years of existence uh, since 1947. And any parliament in the Westminster system, which India, of course, adopted in 1947, uh, a parliament sits at the apex of representative institutions in a country uh, and uh, hence is you know, critical to its functioning. Um, and in the Indian case, uh, especially when many observers did not give Indian democracy much of a chance to survive, uh, parliament, which was convened after elections that were held in 1952, uh, in the face of considerable logistical difficulties, uh, was in many ways symbolic of Indian democracy itself. Uh, indeed, Indian Parliament was uh, held up as a beacon uh, or a sort of shining light for the other newly independent nations of the time, since many uh, nations were becoming independent in the late 40s, early 50s, around the same time as India became independent. Uh, India, in, in fact, although federal in name, has always been centralized in its functioning. In fact, one of the reasons the 1946 cabinet mission failed uh, was due to the center being weak in that proposed scheme. Hence, I would argue that parliament, where uh, you know, national policies are debated and formulated uh, and its functioning, is a critical barometer of the institutional health of, of Indian democracy. So, Ronald, I want to ask you a little bit about this origin of Westminster parliamentary democracy. You know, many critics of democracy in India have argued that. India's constitutional drafters essentially erred uh, when they decided to replicate the British model in India. In your book, you sort of tackle this head on, right? And, and, and I want to quote here, you say, 
it's time we recognize that the Indian Parliament is not only a magnified or multiplied version of its British forebear, but has also evolved into a different kind of institution, for better or for worse, whilst keeping its Westminster trappings, end quote. Uh, what is it that you think the critics are missing when they simply say that India has copycatted or just aped or mimicked uh, the British system. Right. You know, just to address the first part of your question, um, it is important to note that there were no serious or meaningful discussion in the Constituent Assembly, which you know drafted India's constitution between 1947 and 50, about any system other than the Westminster system. Um, and in fact, I use a quote from Jawaharlal Nehru at the beginning of the first chapter, saying something to the effect that India must adopt a system that fits with the temper of the people uh, of India. And there were others like K. Munshi, uh, with a very different ideological bent, who argued along similar lines, saying that for nearly a century, Indian public life has drawn on the traditions of English constitutional law. So in a sense, that's important to note, that India and Indians at 47, in 1947, were really uh, uh, used to or comfortable that with that one particular system, and hence there was very little sort of debate on that. You know, although there were a few stray voices like the constitutional advisor to the Constitutional Assembly, Sir Benegal Narsingh Rao, who argued for a presidential system, but that did not find much traction. There were a few voices too who, uh, you know, put forth a vision of Gandhian decentralization. Of course, we must remember that Gandhi was not part of the constant assembly, but these two were fairly marginal voices. So there was really a, a, a consensus on the Westminster system. And in fact, uh, a future British Prime Minister, Clement Attlee, who had visited India in the 1930s, had suggested the presidential system. And he was quoted as saying something to the effect as that it was as if he had offered the Indians uh, margarine instead of butter when he was talking about the presidential system. Uh, of course, in the assembly, there were a few dissatisfied voices, and you know there were a couple who, who uh, very notably said that they had hoped that the English band would you know give way to the you know what they said the mellifluous notes of a veena or sitar, but that was not to be. So what India adopted was essentially the British model, but it's also important to note that there were you know certain tweaks made in terms of procedures, uh, you know the half-hour discussion, for instance the business advisory committee, etc. But I think it was the scale and diversity of, of Indian parliament uh, 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 that was really, uh, you know, charted a new course uh, for the Indian version of, of, of the Westminster system. Uh, and, and this was noted fairly early on by a, a very not too successful British Prime Minister, Anthony Eden, who said that Indian parliament was not a pale imitation of British parliament, uh, but uh, uh, to quote him, you know, magnified, or, or I think he used the word multiplied, a reproduction of, of the, the House of Commons. So in a sense, I argue that even though India adopts the Westminster system and, and it does uh, without a very serious debate, there is a consensus on that. The trajectory of Indian parliament uh, shows that, uh, you know, it, it, it evolves into it's, it's sort of a, a different kind of beast uh, from what the Westminster, you know, the parliament, the mother parliament you know, was. You know, the first part of the book 
narrates what I call the constitutional prehistory of legislative institutions in India, and that dates back to you know the middle of the 19th century. Uh, and in that prehistory, you argue, contrary to some scholars like Sunil Kalnani among others, that you know despite whatever shortcomings there may have been. Uh, in representative institutions in colonial India, they still nevertheless help to create a constitutional ethos that in some sense anticipated the dawn of the Indian constitution. And just help unpack that for us. You know, it's easy, I think, to write off these institutions as being unrepresentative, unequal, just fundamentally inadequate. But uh, in your account, they do play an important role. Right. You know, um, I think too often and, and quite unexpected, uh, quite expectedly, and we are all guilty of that, you know, the exciting arena of, of nationalist politics has largely overshadowed the limited constitutional reforms, you know, put in place by the British from, you know, the, the mid to actually the late 19th century, post the Great Uprising in 1857. Uh, so that always overshadowed, you know, the rather sedate happenings and discussions inside the representative assemblies. Uh, but it is fairly obvious that these assemblies, even though they were limited in scope and elected on a very limited franchise, you know, provided a training ground for independent India's elected representatives. Uh, and according to W.H. Morris Jones, who in fact wrote the sort of first uh, sort of standard uh, history of parliament uh, in, in the 1950s, according to his calculations, nearly half the MPs in the first Lok Sabha had prior legislative experience uh, from the from the British or the colonial era. Uh, beyond that, you know, besides, you know, the, 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 the experience that independent India's MPs gathered in, in colonial India, one, I think, should not underestimate the debates on the flows of the Central Assembly or the state legislatures, state legislatures in colonial India where stalwarts like, you know, Gokhale or Lalachpatrai or even uh, Jinnah took part and critiqued colonial policy. It was another matter that some of these critiques were, you know, fell on deaf ears. But I think uh, the, these assemblies provided a platform for Indians to, to vent their grievances and to articulate them. Uh, and finally, um, you know, the experience of Indian politicians in local government is, I think, too often underestimated. Uh, so if you see from Nehru to Sadar Vallabhai Patel to Netaji Shubhash Chandra Bose, all of them, and we forget this, had experience in municipal government, in uh, Nehru in Allahabad, Patel in Ahmedabad, and, and Bose in, in Calcutta. You know, just to kind of circle back to the whole debate uh, that the Constituent Assembly had, uh, one of the aspects of the Constitution that I find the most stunning, right, in some sense, is the decision to grant universal adult suffrage from the outset, right? No phase-in, no caveats, uh, anyone of the eligible age, uh, regardless of caste, creed, gender, so on and so forth, uh, able to vote. And, and and you note in the book that this was one of the most revolutionary aspects of the Constitution, but also one in which there was a, almost near unanimity, right? Very little debate. Does that absence of debate surprise you? You're absolutely right. Uh, the, the, the lack of debate in the Constitutional Assembly on universal suffrage, which is, uh, which is a radical step, is somewhat surprising. However, if we look at the history of, 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 of the Indian nationalist movement and its, and its uh, attitude towards 
this issue, we find that from the 1920s, the Indian National Congress had strongly backed uh, universal adult suffrage as one of the principal uh, conditions of independence. In fact, the very famous 1928 Nehru report uh, had advocated adult suffrage, and the 1931 Karachi resolution also formally adopts it. Subsequently, much closer to independence in 1945, you also had the Sapru Committee report, which uh, also comes out in favor of adult suffrage. So there is uh, there is a history, at least within the nationalist movement and the Indian National Congress, on the 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 the. the the, uh, on the importance and the imperative nature of adult suffrage once in, uh, in India becomes independent. Although we must note that you know there were some Constituent Assembly members who did express unease with adult suffrage, and and one of them uh, called Bajeshwar Prasad, whom I quote in the book, you know calls this is a grand leap in the dark, and I'm, and, and I'm quoting him. Outside the assembly, there is some evidence uh, of, 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 of some of the assembly members also uh, voicing their, their uh, uh, unease. And there is, uh, there is a speech where Rajendra Prasad, you know, the first president of India, independent India, reportedly voicing, voicing his anxieties at a public meeting about adult franchise. But uh, by and large, in the assembly itself, uh, we don't find you know, too many voices uh, 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 you know, against or critiquing this idea. You know, you have a very interesting part of the book, which which then goes into the real practicalities of Parliament, how it functions, uh, and who who's in Parliament. What does the composition look like, right? And in one of those chapters, you trace the changing demographics of Parliament over time, and you note very clearly that Parliament is getting older even as India's population continues to be very young, right? And, you know, some people have said, look, India is in danger of, of turning into a gerontocracy, right? Or a polity run by essentially very, very old people that is increasingly out of step with, say, the median citizen or the median voter. Um, tell us a little bit about you know, that discrepancy and, you know, it, it is, does there come a time when that mismatch between who rules and, and who is an Indian um, comes into conflict? Right. You know, that's an interesting question. I, I, I don't know whether I have a clear cut answer to that. Um, Indian parliament, you know, although I think this current parliament is, is marginally younger than the, the earlier ones, but still, you know, the average age is sort of in the mid to late fifties, whereas uh, you're right, you know, India is a very young nation, and uh, a majority of, of the country's population is, is definitely, I think, under 30. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I did some sort of looked at some of the numbers and statistics in terms of uh, the extent to which, for instance, younger members of parliament, say those under 30 or under 40, you know, participate in debates, you know, ask parliamentary questions, you know, how uh, often they attend parliament. And I found uh, that you know the numbers for the younger MPs are not actually better than than the 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 older MPs. In fact, the older MPs tend to do better on on all these counts. So, at least on on in terms of you know taking Parliament seriously, it seems that you know older parliamentarians are actually doing better, uh, at least on these indices, than younger MPs. 
on the question of whether they are able to articulate the concerns and cater to the you know to the to the needs of of a very young constituency you know i you know that bit i haven't really sort of uh, you know done research on but i've found some evidence you know and this is not my own research but uh, others and i've cited i think a couple of papers where it shows that um, you know across a range of democracies um, you know using various parameters uh, it's not necessary that you know younger mps or younger representatives are actually articulating the concerns of 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 uh, uh, the younger population necessarily better than than uh, uh, older mps so i guess uh, in india too i would i would think that um, you know th that that is also the case but in your right there is a concern about you know um, and I, I think mps in the 50s and 60s are fine but we do also have a set of politicians who are are you know you know 80 plus in you know, some even closer to 90 so you know there is probably a point where we do need to decide where there should be a sort of retirement age for politicians but i think there is no democracy probably anywhere where there is a retirement age in that sense so i think uh, you know india might have uh, an sort of uh, demographics in, in that sense an older set of mps but you know i think it will be sort of difficult to put in place uh, uh, a sort of cut off age whereby you know mps should stop sort of either contesting elections or you know entering parliament Hey, Grant the Monster listeners, thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Masha, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. In addition to composition, as I mentioned before, you also talk a lot about the processes and procedures that underlie parliament's functioning or dysfunction, as the case may be, you dwell at some length on the issue of parliamentary disruptions, which, of course, are legion. And you know, I think one of the puzzles here is that, you know, speakers, the, the, the person who is the official chair of the legislative body, you know, they do have the authority actually to crack down on those who seek to disrupt parliamentary proceedings. And yet it seems that they rarely ever do. And I'm wondering if in your research, you know, you have an answer to this question of, you know, why is it that speakers are so accommodating? You know, do you think a more forceful, perhaps more coercive approach could tame, you know, some of the worst excesses when it comes to sort of bad behavior on the floor of parliament? Uh, right. You know, I think that that is that's a very interesting question. I there are two you know possible reasons for the reluctant reluctance of speakers to intervene and enforce the rules and and, and you're right there are rules to to penalize uh you know members who disrupt parliament um so one of the reasons i would say you know, as a rule speakers in india historically have largely been very weak and have too often followed the dictates of the party so they haven't really been independent unlike see speakers in some other you know westminster democracies including in the united kingdom and you know i, I quote a, a, a legal scholar who uses a cricketing, cricketing analogy which might be lost on on, on 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 some outside that the speaker is somewhat akin to an umpire or a referee being appointed by the batting side or the or the side in you know, in power 
So, so that is possibly one of the reasons. Uh, but second, and I think that might be a more important reason, is that uh, you know strict disciplinary measures, uh, for example, you know banning uh, members from uh, from uh, you know, taking part in parliament procedures for a certain period of time, has usually been counterproductive. Um, and 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 this view has been articulated by you know several speakers, and most notably, and I quote in the book, uh, you know one of the vice presidents of of India, Krishan Kant. Who was the chairman of the of the upper house of the Rajya Sabha, who actually said that the presence of rules often provokes the urge to break them, and of course this is a, a human impulse that is you know present outside of parliament. Uh, but uh, you know the tendency of speakers in India to take what I call this conciliatory or accommodative approach uh, could also perhaps be traced. Uh, you know, if you sort of look at the history of. Of, of speakers in parliament can be traced back to Mavalankar, uh, whom I mentioned a bit earlier, the first speaker of the Lok Sabha. And Mavalankar in the 19, you know, I think it was around 1953 or 1954, had once on the question of walkouts and disruption said that, you know, over time, uh, political parties will, will sort of give up the, 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 the will disruptive uh, activities. And he said, that any attempt to impose rules or regulations is likely to worsen the situation and, and more likely to turn up the backs of those who are, uh, who, who are doing this. And, and, and he believed that in, over time, legislators will, will uh, start behaving more responsibly. So I think a lot of successive speakers have sort of taken Mavalankar's you know, uh, uh, approach, this sort of conciliatory approach to heart. But unfortunately, I think, you know, Mavalanka's hope that disruptions and disruptive behavior would disappear has not come true. In fact, I think disruptions have been on a constant sort of upswing. And, and we've seen not in, the, in this current parliament uh, and, and the earlier one, but the one from 2009 to 2014, we saw parliament being very seriously disrupted. So, you know, there has been an uptick in disruptions definitely over the last, uh, you know, two decades or so. You know, various sections of the book are devoted to the question of corruption, uh, self-dealing among legislators. It sort of comes up in various forms, uh, you know, in, across many chapters. And, and you note that there is a real lack of clarity around conflict of interest in India, right? So everybody knows it's an open secret. Lobbying exists, but only in the shadows. I'm wondering... Why do you think it is that, you know, there hasn't been a greater move towards actually building a legal and regulatory framework around this set of issues? You know, after all, uh, politically, it actually seems like it might be, you know, a popular with voters, right, who are no dummies, who understand that favor trading and horse trading and the kinds of activities that take place on, on Capitol Hill and K Street in the United States, you know, happen on, uh, happen in New Delhi as well. So, you know, is is there a way forward to actually bring some of these issues to light, you know, perhaps in a regulated sense? You know, uh, Milena, the, the uh, political parties and, and, and politicians have been uh, uh, you know, rarely interested in, in, in this kind of regulation, at least in India. Uh, the, the impetus for much of this has actually come through Supreme Court uh, rulings. Uh, so, for instance, and you've done, you know, uh, uh, very good work on this on 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 the criminality of politicians 
on 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 the wealth of politicians, etc. And you know the 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 very fact that now we know which MP has a criminal record or or what kind of assets he or she uh, has is actually due to to Supreme Court rulings in uh, in that sort of 2001 2002 uh, 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 phase where the Supreme Court actually uh, uh, you know ruled that elected representatives uh, you know both who are elected as well as you know those who contest elections must uh, in an affidavit in a state a their you know assets and b whether they have a criminal record or not um, and left to the political parties I don't think. Uh, they would have done anything, and and this is true for uh, other issues like uh, you know conflict of interest. Uh, there has been some movement in terms of you know uh, MPs declaring their conflict of interest, uh, but uh, you know that has been complete. That has been incomplete. So, for instance, if you look at you know the committees, uh, you know, the committee system was expanded in a big way from the 1990s. You find that in in, in a lot of the committees. Uh, you know, members, you know, sitting on deciding on issues in which they are actually stakeholders. For instance, uh, for a committee that's deciding on on say matters regarding to to civil aviation, for instance, you'll have actually, you know, a member who probably has a stake or who owns an airline, or similarly, you know, some someone you know debating in a committee or discussing the issue of regulation of tobacco, you will find someone you know. Who's either an owner of a tobacco company or has a stake in a tobacco company? So uh, there are sort of multiple such examples that one can give up. Um, so unfortunately, you know, there has not been, you know, any uh, initiative or you know, sort of serious, you know, excepting for stray uh, initiatives taken by by you know, individual MPs. Uh, political parties as units have not, you know, taken uh, uh, any serious step forward and. One of the reasons, you know, I think for this is that, uh, and again, this goes, I think, goes back to some of the work you have done, is that you know, it looked much of political and electoral funding is very murky and opaque. And you, you've powerfully documented this in, in your, in your, both your book and your other work, and and and, and this, I think, leads to you know the, the reluctance of of politicians and elected representatives to really sort of clean up. The system, and uh, I might add here uh, that the issuing of electoral bonds by the, the the current government has actually done nothing to clean this up. In fact, it has made the situation even murkier. Roger, I want to sort of back up a second and sort of zoom out uh, again to the macro picture. You know, when you sat down to write this book, uh, you were fundamentally interested in two uh, sets of questions, right? Number one. Is Parliament working to articulate the diverse demands of a diverse polity and translate them into legislative action? That's kind of you know one set of concerns. The second really is about how the practice of Indian democracy has trans transformed the the institution of Parliament, right? And so, so you know, maybe let's just start with the first for a second. You know, as you as you reflect on this book and some of the lessons that are in it, some of the history and some of the research. You know, what is your principal takeaway about the effectiveness? You know, you know, 75 years on, you know, should Indians be proud of the work that Parliament has done to essentially, you know, manage this unprecedented diversity and sort of channelize uh, those demands and those desires into policy action? 
Right. Um, and I don't think there's a sort of clear-cut answer to that. Uh, but, you know, arguably, and I, I mentioned this in the book, you know, Parliament has, of course, become much more representative and diverse, particularly in its sort of caste composition. You know, of course, there were uh, quotas or reservations put in place for the scheduled caste as well as the as the scheduled tribes. And then, you know, in, in the 90s, you know, post, you know, what is known as the Mandal uh, uh, commission uh, reports uh, report and its implementation. We've had you know members of the other backward classes or the lower castes also getting much more representation in parliament. Uh, along with that, we've also seen uh, uh, you know a, a much greater diversity in the occupational composition of parliament. So if you look at the early parliaments, you know nearly a third of parliament's uh, representatives were were lawyers, and subsequently this has changed. Uh, we find, you know, more people from rural backgrounds, more people engaged in agriculture, etc. You know, uh, being being part of parliament. So that's the good part. Uh, we've also seen sort of the committee system, which I mentioned, considerably expanding uh, in the 1990s uh, under Prime Minister Rao. and that too has worked reasonably well. At the same time, there are serious representational deficits, uh, uh, particularly in terms of the low numbers of women. Uh, in fact, India's you know number of women representatives is far lower than the global you know average, and in fact, it's much lower than its South Asian neighbors, uh, Pakistan, Bangladesh, for instance. Partly because Bangladesh and Pakistan have quotas for women, which India has uh, up till now not managed to do. Uh, again, another worrying aspect is the the low numbers of of of, of representation of minorities, uh, particularly Muslims. For, for instance, the current parliament, uh, the one that was elected in two thousand nineteen, uh, has uh, you know I think roughly you know three point five, at least definitely under four percent Muslims, whereas the actual population of Muslims is fifteen percent. So there's a wide gap between the number of you know Muslims. Uh, in, in the Indian population and and the percentage uh, uh, of elected MPs. So these are are, are you know firing aspects. Along with that, you know we've and this we mentioned uh, earlier, you know the rise in the number of wealthy MPs, which actually is a pointer to the high cost of, of contesting elections. And again, those with criminal backgrounds. And, and I think both of this point. Uh, to the high cost of elections, contesting elections, and and the, you know, the, the high bar on entry into parliament. These, I think, are serious, you know, deficits uh, of of the Indian parliamentary system. Uh, coupled with this, you know, the, the the diversity, which you know is both has its both good as well as its sort of uh, you know weaker aspects. Uh, you know, diversity arguably has also led to disruptions and protests inside parliament. Which has, you know, I think, taken a serious toll on on Parliament's functioning. So, in short, um, you know, if I were to use, you know, Ramachandra Guha's, you know, famous characterization of Indian democracy, I would say uh, it is it is sort of 50, 50 You know, uh, if one were to sort of look at, you know, Parliament as a whole. But if we sort of, you know, uh, uh, you know, come to the to the current phase, you know, post two thousand fourteen. I would see, uh, you know, certain other deficiencies, you know, besides the ones that I mentioned, um, uh, which is part of the trend of institutions getting undermined, and Parliament is no exception. And this, I think, is a worrying trend as we sort of look into the future. You know, um, you know, 
despite the fact that I think, you know, Parliament has has been, you know, successful to a great extent in 75 years. But looking ahead, you know, I, I, I see, uh, you know, uh, there are certain sort of, you know, clouds on the horizon. You know, you sort of answered in some sense both questions in, in, in one because what you just said right now I think was a very uh, eloquent encapsulation of the costs and benefits of deepening democratization on uh, the transformation or functioning of parliament. You know, l- let me just ask you since we sort of ended on a, a bit of an, an, an ominous mo- uh, note about, you know, the, the path forward, um, I want to ask you about the link between the kind of political balance of power and parliament's functioning. You know, in the book, you you document the many ways in which parliament actually suffered during the coalition era because it became very hard for disparate parties to forge a common understanding when you had so many coalition partners, a real fragmentation in Indian politics, a real regionalization of Indian politics. Uh, but in the current single party era, where we have a single hegemon in the form of uh Mr. Modi's BJP, Parliament also seems to be struggling, right, under the weight of a rather domineering hegemonic party, which has sought to, uh, say, undermine or circumvent the committee system, has sought to to use money bills as a way of circumventing the say of the upper house. Uh, some some would say strong arm tactics on on particular votes. Is the political balance of power therefore? so central to determining how well the legislator, uh, legislature functions, right? Because we've sort of seen it suffer under the weight of coalitions, and now some would argue suffer under the weight of a single-party hegemon. Right. Uh, you know, I think there are you know, possibly two ways of looking at it. Um, say, for instance, if you consider disruptions, uh, on which I have an entire chapter, and which in a sense is often seen as a dis- defining sort of characteristic or feature of today's parliament, so for disruptions, a dominant party in parliament, you know, often actually leads to at least a superficially better functioning parliament in terms of productivity, uh, since there is possibly less scope of disruptions as opposed to, you know, what you call, uh, you know, a sort of fragmented polity of parliament. And this was, in fact, hinted at by, you know, Prime Minister A.B. Vajpayee in 2001, uh, when he sort of addressed a conference which was on discipline and decorum in parliament and state legislatures, where he said that, uh, uh, you know, possibly in the first two decades of, of Indian, you know, parliamentary democracy, the very fact that there was, you know, one party rule uh, meant that, uh, uh, you know, there were sort of less disruptions, you know, parliament was much more sort of, you know, uh, functioned better, you know, in terms of the number of days it sat, in, tumber, in terms of number of legislations, etc. However, I would argue on other substantive aspects, you know, if you leave aside, you know, number of days Parliament sits, uh, the number of bills passed, you know, the amount of time lost disruptions, on other aspects, a dominant party or hegemonic party can prove to be harmful, uh, and we are seeing that in the current phase. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, one of the striking characteristics uh, of the of the last two Parliaments, you know, beginning in 2014. Is we we see that you know fewer bills are being referred to committees. Um, so, for instance, in in 2009 to 2014, if I remember the numbers correctly, I think roughly around 65 percent of the, or at least you know three quarters of the bills were being referred to committees, and committee inputs were were being taken on board. But uh, uh, for the current parliament, the one you know that's been in session 2019. 
we see uh, you know only a quarter you know roughly on 25% of bills being referred to committees and this i think has been disastrous so for instance if we sort of uh, you know many important bills have been pushed through uh, without being referred to to committees for instance i can you know on the top of my, top of my head recall say the 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 the, the legislation to abrogate the special status of kashmir in article 370 or for instance the very controversial farm laws which were pushed through without any serious discussion and without being referred to to uh, uh, to committees um so so that's i think you know one of the sort of downsides of of uh, a dominant party we've also seen you know striking decline in in bipartisanship both on the floor of the house uh, and and in committees and i would say you know one of the sort of fallouts of the of a dominant uh, a party in parliament is is in general disregard for the opposition and 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 to give the the opposition a voice and you also mentioned very rightly that uh, there are bills uh, that are being pushed uh, through as money bills and 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 the reference i guess is you know very prominently to the bill on the aadhaar or the unique identification you know you uh, the number uh, which were in which has very wide ramifications but was pushed through as a money bill precisely uh, because uh, uh, you know in the upper house of the rajya sabha at that point the ruling party of the bjp did not have a majority so these are are, are things that the you know the, the the current dispensation or any dispensation even earlier and one can go back to the indira gandhi era uh, has done uh, which has bypassed the sort of checks and balances of, of parliament again you know another example is the the use of ordinances uh, Uh, which has seen a, a steep rise compared uh, from 2014 onwards compared say for the period from you know uh, 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 2004 to 2014 so i think there are sort of various aspects uh, deleterious as- aspects i would say to uh, to a dominant party in parliament and in contrast coalition governments have often got the stick for being very messy often chaotic but arguably coalition governments have also been more democratic and representative of different views and this is something that's sometimes forgotten because you know coalition governments are are you know messy by with very nature of you know various parties which have come together with very d- different sort of ideas of how to sort of govern india um, and this has been noted i think by by scholars who studied studied coalition governments and and in fact you know they've they've argued that you know coalition governments and coalition parliaments in fact have been much more consensus driven than uh, uh, you know parliaments that have been uh, that have been dominated by one party as we see in 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 the current instance my guest on the show this week is rona joy sen he is a senior research fellow at the institute of south asian studies at the national university of singapore his new book is called house of the people parliament and the making of indian democracy The scholar Pratap Banumetha calls it a rich, historically nuanced and engagingly written account of the making of India's parliament as an institution and the key tensions that marked its formation. Rana Joy, this will be a uh, book that people will call upon for a long time as a kind of institutional biography of parliament. Uh, congratulations and thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you, Milan, for those kind words. Grantham Asha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. 
You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review to help others find the show. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Cliff Jayapranada is our executive producer. Production assistance comes from Nithya Love. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production, brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.